We are in the book of Esther. If you would turn there with me, if you're not sure where to find Esther, open your Bible to the middle and go left. And if you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, it's the next book. So if you get into Chronicles, you've gone too far. But Esther is a uh, story from Jewish history. It's an exciting story, and it's a sad story all at the same time. And we're in the middle of it, chapter 2. I'm only going to do the first 18 verses today. Um, We'll pick up with verse 19 next week. Listen carefully. Uh, Again, it's an unusual book, but it is the Word of God, and it's here for a reason. So let's uh, turn to Esther chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the capital under the custody of Hegi, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who pleases of the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, Benjaminite who'd been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with uh, Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace." In the evening, she would go in. In the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgash, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. 
When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahas Urias in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. It is an unusual passage. But God has something for us here in it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. And Lord, as we come to your word, as we study this difficult book to understand, we pray that you would give us understanding. Help us to see the big picture of how you work. Remind us that you use sinful people like us to carry out your work, even when we don't realize it. And it's our prayer that we, we would see you in a book that doesn't mention you. For this, we need your wisdom and grace. And we ask for that this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The movie Beauty and the Beast, at least the Disney version of it, centers around a prince who is transformed into a beast and a beautiful young woman whom he imprisons in his castle. In the film's prologue, told through the stained glass windows, an old beggar woman arrives at the castle of a French prince. The woman asks for shelter from the cold and in return offers the young prince a rose. However, the prince is repulsed by her appearance and he turns her away. The beggar warns him not to judge by appearances, but the prince ignores her and shuts the door. The woman then throws off her disguise, reeling, revealing that she is a beautiful enchantress. The prince quickly tries to apologize, but she has already seen the lack of kindness in his heart. So she conjures up a powerful curse and transforms him into a big, ugly beast and turns his servants into furniture and household items, and the entire castle and all its surroundings into a dark, forbidding place so that he will learn not to judge by appearances. However, she also gives him a magic mirror that will enable him to see uh, events in other places, and she gives him the rose, which will bloom until his 21st birthday. The curse can only be broken if the beast learns to love another and receive another's love in return before the last petal of the enchantress's rose has fallen off. And if he can't find love, he will be doomed to remain a beast forever. And as the years pass, the beast sits in his castle, wallowing in despair, convinced no one could ever love him. Years later, a beautiful but unusual young woman named Belle, which of course means beauty, lives in a nearby village with her father, Maurice, who is an inventor. Belle loves reading and yearns for life beyond the village, and she's also the object of unwanted attention 
from the arrogant local hero, Gaston. Maurice's latest invention is a wood chopping machine, and when he rides off to display the machine at the fair, he loses his way in the woods and stumbles upon the beast's castle, where he meets the transformed servants, Lumiere, Mrs. Potts, her son Chip, and Cogsworth. The beast imprisons Maurice, but Belle is led back to the castle by Maurice's horse and offers to take her father's place. If you've read the books and haven't seen the movie, this is where the story is somewhat different than the books. But the beast agrees to take Belle and send Maurice home, and Maurice goes back to the village and tells everyone what happened, but they think he's lost his mind, that he's insane, and uh, so he leaves. He thinks he's going to rescue her alone. Meanwhile, Belle has refused the beast's invitation to dinner, and the beast orders his servants to not let her eat. But Lumiere serves her dinner anyway, and Cogsworth gives her a tour of the castle. And she finds the rose in a forbidden area, and the beast catches her and angrily chases her away. And so she tries to escape. She's frightened, but she's attacked by wolves. But then the beast comes and rescues her. And, uh, and she nurses his wounds because he gets uh, attacked by the wolves as well. And uh, in return for helping him, he gives her the castle library as a gift and a friendship begins. They have an elegant dinner, and later they have a ballroom dance. But then he lets her see the magic mirror, and she sees her father dying in the woods. And with only hours left before the rose wilts, the beast allows her to leave, giving her the mirror to remember him by. This horrifies the servants, who assume that they'll never be human again. And as he watches her leave, the beast admits that he has fallen in love with Belle. She finds her father, takes him home, but Gaston arrives with a lynch mob, and unless she agrees to marry him, they're going to lock her father up. She proves her father sane by showing them the beast with the magic mirror. So Gaston turns on them, arouses a mob's anger, and leads them to the castle to kill the beast. He locks Belle and Maurice in a basement. But Chip... Mrs. Potts' son had hid himself in Belle's baggage, and she chops, he chops the uh, basement door apart with Maurice's wood-chopping machine. And the servants successfully drive the mob out of the castle, and Gaston finds the beast and attacks him. And the beast, too depressed to fight back, but when he sees Belle arrive, all his strength and, and uh, uh, spirit comes back. And he wins the battle, he spares Gaston's life and climbs up the balcony to where Belle is waiting for him. But Gaston follows him up there and stabs him from behind, and then loses his footing and falls to his death. <laughs> but the beast lies there, dying from his injuries, and Belle whispers that she loves him as the last petal drops from the rose. The beast, of course, comes back to life, he and the servants become human, and they're dancing in the ballroom as everyone's happily watching them. At least that's the story according to Disney. <laughs> Beauty and the Beast is one of the few fairy tales where the main characters actually get to know each other before falling in love. 
unlike Cinderella, falls in love in one evening, or Sleeping Beauty, who falls in love with one kiss, Belle spends weeks with the beast before falling in love with him. And the message given by the story, besides the main uh, Disney staple that true love will always prevail, here we also have the message that true beauty lies within, which is admirable and rare. Today we're back in the book of Esther, and this is very much a Beauty and the Beast story. It's a little different from the Disney version. But if you pay close attention, you will see there are more parallels here that initially meet the eye. Before we get too far, let's review what we learned last week. Esther is a book of flawed people. Last week we started this series, and if you missed last week's sermon, I hope you'll go back and read it or listen to it. There's a lot of background information that's important to the story. In the first chapter, uh, the author of Esther heaps a ton of satire on the empire of Persia and on the most powerful monarch of the 5th century before Christ, King Ahasuerus, better known as Xerxes the Great. Now, the king was so pompous, he puts on essentially a six-month-long world's fair, showing off his enormous wealth, culminating in a seven-day feast that was the mother of all banquets. He did this to draw support for his upcoming war with the Greeks. And on the last day of the banquet, when he and most of his nobles were drunk, he summoned Queen Vashti to the banquet so he could show off her beauty to this huge party of drunk men. The queen didn't think this was such a great idea, and she refused. So he called a special meeting of his advisors, who urged him to pass an irrevocable decree, the law of the Medes and the Persians, that Vashti be banned from the king's presence, her crown given to someone better than she, meaning someone more submissive, but equally beautiful. And the real motive behind this seems not so much punishment of Vashti, but so much uh, fear that her behavior will catch on throughout the kingdom of Persia, and there would be a Persian women's liberation movement, and it would destroy life as they know it, and the world would come to an end. And the edict is published throughout the empire in every language, so those people didn't get the gossip. Now everybody knows. The king says that every man should be ruler over his own household. Now, there's a lot of humor in this. It is, there's a lot of satire, and you kind of have to get beneath the story a little bit to sort of see the tongue-in-cheek uh, play of all this. I think the author wants us to laugh at the empire, to realize the absurdity of some of the things that are going on here, but also to realize that the king's power is insignificant, as great as he is, compared with the power and providence of God. The other key theme we examined last Sunday is really preparation for today. We talked about the fact that the main characters of our story, starting in this chapter, chapter 2, are Jewish exiles, descendants of the captives that Nebuchadnezzar had seized when he destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah over a century earlier. And although Cyrus, who was the Persian Empire earlier, has already permitted the Jews to return to their homeland, after the Babylonian captivity, most of them chose not to go home. They've become successful and comfortable in the empire. 
And that's the folks we're talking about in this book. These are the Jews who decided not to go back to Jerusalem. We also spoke of the empire in which we live, that we too are exiles and have to be careful not to take the empire too seriously. And we should learn to laugh at it. But today we're going to discover that laughing at the empire is uh, not always a laughing matter. And there can be consequences and a heavy price. So we pick up the story of Esther in chapter 2. But I'm, it, it's a little long, but I don't think you're going to have trouble tracking with me. And the story starts with the king's advisors. Verses 1 through 4, the king's advisors. It says, After these things, when the anger of King Ahas Yorias had abated, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Last week I told the seven advisors were more like the seven stooges, and they came up with this brilliant plan to preserve the king's honor and their own, but apparently hadn't thought through the logistics of finding a new queen. And with the king having second thoughts about Vashti, they realized they need to find a way to distract him. What better way than with a harem full of beautiful young women from which he can choose his new queen? So they propose what is essentially a nationwide beauty contest. These young women will be placed under the supervision of the head eunuch, and they'll go through year-long beauty treatments. And then they'll audition one by one before the king. And the girl who pleased the king the most would take Vashti's place. Not surprisingly, considering what we already know about Xerxes, this advice pleased the king, and he did so. But before we go further into our story, the main characters need to be introduced, and they, of course, are Mordecai and Esther. Look at verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. That's an important verse. And then jump down to verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. It's not real clear whether Mordecai's cousin or uncle or what once removed, the text doesn't actually jive in different places. It doesn't always treat it the same way. Um, but we're told in the space of a few short verses quite a bit about Mordecai. First of all, his name is probably a Babylonian name. It probably comes from, uh, it's sort of the Hebrew version of Marduka. Marduk was a Babylonian sun god. And it wasn't unusual, as we know from the book of Daniel, for the Jews to be given Babylonian names. Daniel's Babylonian name was uh, Belteshazzar. His three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are actually better known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Mordecai here is clearly identified as a Jew. In fact, we're given a significant amount of information about his genealogy. He is of the tribe of Benjamin. 
the son of Jair, the grandson of Shammai, the great-grandson of Kish, which makes him a descendant of King Saul. And that's a significant fact. And that comes back into play later on in the story. So you just file that away somewhere, remember that. That will come into play later. He is a descendant of King Saul. And Kish is one of those who's carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar over a hundred years earlier. So Mordecai is a third or fourth generation exile. He's never lived in Jerusalem. Most likely he has never been to Jerusalem. He has no memory of Jerusalem, Judah, Israel, none of it. And again, depending on how the the translations are different in different uh, parts, we're not sure whether he's third generation or fourth generation. It seems that he's fourth um, from this text, but there's other texts that looks different. And this becomes a defining feature. It says in verse uh, 6, chapter 2, verse 6, they had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with the king, whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away. Those words carried away literally mean exile. Said they'd been exiled among the exiles when they were exiled. Mordecai is an exile, although he's now an exile by choice. And that's important for the story. He can go back. He's had the opportunity to go back. He has chosen and thus kept himself there in Persia along with Esther. And in many ways, you could say they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. If it were really obedient Jews, they'd be back in Jerusalem, and they're not. And that has a big deal to do with the rest of the story. Esther seems to be his Mordecai's cousin. He adopts her when her parents died. We're given no information about how they died, Evidently, she's quite young because we're told that she was raised by Mordecai. Now, Esther here has two names. Her Jewish name is Hadassah, which means myrtle, uh, as in the tree. Her Persian name is Esther. Comes from Ishtar, again, the Babylonian goddess of fertility, and it means star. That's important to remember as well. That comes back to play uh, later in the story. Esther means star. In fact, when we unveil the new logo for our campaign for such a time as this, which of course comes from the book of Esther, the new logo will have a star in it, which as you now know, is taken from the meaning of Esther's name. But her two names indicate that Esther is the daughter of two cultures. In fact, that becomes really important as the story unfolds, because there's going to come a day when she has to decide which of these two worlds is going to define her. We're also told that she's lovely in form and features. She is a beautiful girl. And this will become relevant in a moment. And having introduced our characters, the author then returns to the empire-wide beauty contest. Not only does the king approve the idea, according to verse 8, he issues an edict to that effect. This puts the force of Persian law behind the effort. And we don't know how many girls were drafted for this particular branch of the civil service. Um, The historian Josephus claims there were about 400. 
And the relevance of our story is revealed next when Esther is taken. Verses 8 uh, through 16, Esther is taken. It says, So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of uh, Haggai, the uh, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And it goes on and, and talks us about, to us about everything they go through and how they get ready to go in for their audition before the king. And jumping down to verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, we find out now who her father is, and he has a Jewish name, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. When Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. I think the author of our story purposely uses the word taken in verse 8 so as to leave some ambiguity in our mind. She doesn't apparently apply for the position. She didn't sign up for the beauty contest. Did she go willingly or was she forced? Did Mordecai protest or was he proud of her? We don't know, and there are very few hints in the text. We do know she meets all the qualifications and she wins the favor of the harem boss and everyone else. And you recall from verse 2, there were three qualifications established by the search committee. The contestants had to be beautiful young virgins. And Esther apparently is all three. The author also makes a note of the fact that Esther pleases Haggai, the chief eunuch, and wins his favor. And as a result, he gives her special treatment. She apparently gets beauty treatments and food the others didn't receive. Got to remember, in that culture, if you got more food, you were generally bigger, which was a sign of wealth. The Western idea of thin is beautiful would not have been understood at all in the ancient Near East. Thin meant you were poor. Okay? And so if you wanted to show your wealth, you weren't thin. You can do with that whatever you want. Um, but apparently she gives, is given uh, seven other maids from the palace and essentially moves into the penthouse of the harem. And from all appearances, and I emphasize appearances, the author doesn't really talk to us much about motives or attitudes, just simply is telling the story. Esther has learned not only how to survive, but how to thrive in her new life. Even if she was taken against her will, she doesn't seem to waste time moping around, feeling sorry for herself, hoping against hope that she'd be rejected before her audition and be able to return home. If that were the case, I doubt that Haggai would have tolerated her, much less favored her. Furthermore, if you noticed verse 15, it says, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. It sounds like she was chosen as miscongeniality by the rest of the contestants. Could have used that movie. And it's this, this point that we figure out one of the more disconcerting facts, actually a couple disconcerting facts about Esther. And the first one is she hides her Jewishness in obedience to Mordecai. 
Why? I think not only because it becomes crucial to the storyline, but it gives us more insight into the spiritual, the spiritual condition of Mordecai and Esther and their fellow exiles in Persia. You see, hiding her nationality and family background means may, way more uh, then than it would be for somebody today to say, hide the fact that they're Dutch. To hide her Jewishness means she's hiding her faith. She's clearly not living by the Mosaic law. She's clearly not observing Jewish dietary restrictions. She's not observing the Sabbath and the feast. We don't even know if she knows about any of that stuff. You think she, she is. We are told that she's Jewish. But her Jewishness is not apparent. It's not obvious. It's not only not seen in her. It's not seen in how she lives. And it seems to me that Esther and Mordecai have chosen a course of action that's designed to protect them from political danger and social danger, but at the same time is fraught with spiritual danger. And that's important to remember because it highlights the dramatic change to come later. We're actually getting all this background uh, information in chapter 2 so we can understand the rest of the story. Anyway, Esther's taken into this competition, and much to our surprise, she follows the rules of the competition. That's sort of the second surprising thing. The rules are laid out clearly, 12 months of beauty treatments. Ladies, I don't know whether you think this is good or bad, six months with oil of myrrh. And, and the way I looked up the Hebrew for this, and it's not like, you know, you put it on in the morning at night. It's like you're in a place that's sort of fumigated with this stuff, and so you kind of live in it, and it's sort of in the air. Apparently this is good for you, or at least the king thinks so. Then six months with perfumes and cosmetics, probably to get you over the six months with the oil of myrrh. Um, and then each girl comes, and they have to audition before the king. They're allowed to take anything they want, uh, with them to the king's palace. I assume this would include whatever, whatever uh, seductive clothes they wanted to wear, special food they had prepared for the king, whatever they needed to impress him. And she would have one night with the king, and if he never asked for her again, she'd be reassigned to the harem, to the second harem, it says, and spend the rest of her life there since the king's toys can't be shared with anyone else. And you understand what that means. There isn't a winner and everybody else gets to go home. If you're not chosen to be wife and thus queen, you have to settle for being concubine and part of the second harem. You're not in the first harem because you're no longer a beautiful young virgin. You're now a second harem and you're a concubine. No one goes home because the empire owns you. And they own your body. And they can do whatever they want with it. And that's just the culture. And it doesn't just apply to women. Those eunuchs didn't sign up. They didn't, volunteer. They didn't pass out a sign-up sheet for eunuchs. They went out and found a bunch of guys and made them eunuch and said, this is your life. Deal with it. Because they owned you. And that's one of the things we have to understand here. Whatever the empire said, whatever the king said, that's what went, regardless of how unjust or unfair or how horrible you think it might be. That was life in the empire. 
And according to verse 15, when Esther's turn arrives to go to the king, she doesn't do Lady Gaga. She doesn't show off, go for publicity. She doesn't impress the king with anything external. She takes only uh, what Haggai, the head eunuch, suggests. And she seems to have a kind of a quiet self-confidence, willing to be herself, let her natural beauty, perhaps her sweet personality, win the day. But this whole beauty pageant thing is, I think, one of the more difficult aspects of the story for us to consider. There is simply no way to see this as anything other than what it is. A pagan king auditioning hundreds of young girls in his bed looking for just the right one. There's no way you can make any sort of good come out of this. It's, it's just a terrible situation. It's a pagan, horrible situation. By the way, do you notice the time frame we're given? Verse 16, we're specifically given time. And it, it ends with, in the seventh, this happens in the seventh year of his reign. Do you remember when the story began in chapter 1? In the third year of his reign. Because in these intervening years, we have this, this gap of four years. Xerxes is off fighting a disastrous war with the Greeks. I think that's why he was willing to give these girls all this a year for beauty treatments, because he's off losing. But you look at this and you find Esther involved in this sordid affair, hiding her faith, and from purely moral standpoint, it's just disappointing. Probably not to Esther, since she not only enters the competition and agrees to play by the rules and excels in her preparation, but in the end, Esther wins. Look at verses 17 and 18. Esther wins. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. I put Esther wins in quotation marks because if the... If this is really a win, I think it sort of depends on the larger context and your perspective. Um, imagine the reaction of uh, Mordecai, Esther's uh, whatever family or friends they have. They learn that one of their own is chosen queen. I think it's a mixed emotion uh, kind of thing. You know, there's pride, there's excitement, there's probably some fear uh, for her safety. It didn't work out so well for the last queen knowing the fickleness of the king. Maybe there's some concern about her uh, spiritual welfare, but the author is silent on all those things. And it ends with, she's honored with a banquet. Banquets will be a major theme of this book. And this one's called Esther's Feast. Honor the new uh, queen. And all the nobles and officials come. The king proclaims a holiday. He gives gifts. He granted a remission of taxes, which is actually an ancient Near Eastern way to proclaim a holiday. And then we're not going into verse 19, but I'm going to pick out the first half of that verse. It says, when the virgins were assembled a second time. And this may be a reference to some sort of celebration on the anniversary of Esther's selection as queen. But some scholars, most scholars, actually think it means that Xerxes went back and auditioned the girls a second time, even after making Esther queen. They point to the fact in chapter 4, she faces a dilemma because she hasn't seen the king for 30 days. So becoming queen is probably not all glory and honor. 
for Esther. She's the queen, she's the wife. But her husband has, at minimum, 400 concubines. So this doesn't turn out to be such a great position after all. And that ends our story for today. And we'll pick up with verse uh, 19 and carry through chapter 3. So what do we learn from our introductions to Esther and Mordecai? Well, we see that Esther and Mordecai's lives are filled with the wrong rules and sinful choices. You have to get over the idea these are great heroes of the faith. They're not. They're not being presented that way. These are sinful people who have sinful lives, who've made sinful decisions. And what I want to see you to see about these two sinful people who are in the wrong place at the wrong time making sinful choices is that they're still used by God in a powerful way, despite the fact that they've done absolutely nothing to deserve it. First thing that we see is those who play the empire's game find themselves playing by the empire's rules. Esther either reluctantly or willingly goes after the number one prize the woman has to offer, or the world has to offer a woman of her day to be queen of the empire. And to do so, she has to eat whatever was set before her, which gives you that automatic comparison to Daniel and what he did. He didn't eat what was set before him. He has to wear the clothes that were laid out for her. I don't know. I'm guessing. I don't think modesty was something that would match the clothes that the king chose. She focused on beauty treatments instead of spiritual growth, and she prepared to spend the night with a man she wasn't married to and had a history of treating women as playthings. How many of you parents would set her up as an example for your daughters? How many of you are going to teach him, you know, dare to be an Esther? <laughs> I don't think so. You know, I read this and I was like, you know, my daughters are married and gone, and I'm very grateful that by the time I got here, they were married and off figuring all that out. But you got to wonder, how come Esther just doesn't say no? Why doesn't she refuse and say, if I perish, I perish now instead of in chapter 4? And it would be easy to say, well, if she refused, she wouldn't gain the position of influence to do what God wanted her to do coming in chapter 8. But I don't think that's really an answer because God could use her earlier in the story to prevent the plot he uses later, her, her later to stop. You know, I'm teaching a class I'm preaching now and one of the students raised their hand and said, don't you think God really works, you know, most often Saturday night and, and you know, get you ready for that message? And I said, tell me the Holy Spirit can't be equally active on Tuesday afternoon? Not sure I'm buying into that. I said, usually working Saturday night is not so much a move of the Holy Spirit as the consequences of unfaithfulness during the week. Uh, but God can work whenever he wants in our lives or in this story. And we just don't know. The fact is, many Christians today face similar challenges in deciding whether or not to play the empire's game. 
Just give you one arena, politics. Every now and then, an evangelical enters politics. A few have advanced quite high in government, but invariably, they discover how many things about politics are diametrically opposed to Christian biblical principles. Take attack ads, most of which are essentially dishonest. And most political pros say it's almost impossible to win a hotly contested election without painting one's opponent in the worst possible light. Or earmarks. The powerful interests that provide essential campaign cash want something in return for that support. That's how the world operates. And if a candidate refuses on biblical grounds to play by those rules, he will soon find himself on the outside looking in. Those are the rules. They aren't fair, but those are the rules. And the empire's game is enticing, but its rules are troubling. And that game is played in the corporate world, in the academic world, in virtually any secular arena you want to go into. It's not uh, just in politics. So what's the answer? Do we refuse to engage the empire, reject public life, retreat to our sacred ghetto? Doesn't seem to be a biblical answer. There's lots of examples in the Bible of believers at the center of culture. Do we keep our faith private? There are powerful secularists in the world today demanding that we do that, more and more so. They tell us they have no problem with religious faith as long as it doesn't inform our actions or attitudes or impact uh, our decisions. What good is a faith that doesn't inform anything, that doesn't make a difference in your life, in your worldview, in your decisions? It's really to have no faith. At the same time, honesty demands that we confess we're way more like Esther than we would want to admit. Trying to blend in, seeking the affirmation of those around us, exercising perhaps genuine but private faith. And this whole sort of sad chapter brings me to the second point for which I am very grateful, and which some of you may view as a sellout. I don't know, I hope not. But it's a simple truth that God is sovereign even over our sinful choices and wasted opportunities. I am very grateful that God not only uses the biblical superstars like Daniel and Paul, but also the weak strong men, Samson, Esther and Mordecai, Doubting Thomas, Timid Timothy, and Peter the denier. I'm not saying that we shouldn't aspire to be like Daniel or Joseph or Paul. But if we know we're not there yet, and most of us aren't, we can find some comfort in the fact that we're not automatically eliminated from being used by God. And I see hope here. Hope for people who may have married an unbeliever even though they knew they shouldn't. Hope for one who chose a career based on all the wrong motivations and is now paying the consequences. I see hope for those who have wasted big chunks of their life pursuing all the wrong things. God is sovereign even over such errors, mistakes, and sins, however unintentional and however much they were intentional. In the movie Beauty and the Beast, did you ever wonder what kept the beast alive even when he thought no one would ever love him and he was condemned to remain a beast forever? All because of one big mistake caused by an attitude of arrogance? Hope. He was given hope. And perhaps God has brought us to where we are today 
so that we can still serve him in some unique way? Are we willing to be used by God even after our screw-ups and mistakes, not to mention all of our big-time sins? The possibility that God may yet use us doesn't make our wrong decisions right. But it does cause us, it should cause us to give thanks to God that past failures don't write us out of a role in his script for our future. He's able to form beautiful pictures out of the stained efforts of dirty people. Yes, you and I are bigger sinners than we ever thought. But God is a greater Savior than we can ever imagine. And that's the good news. Remember that, you need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Heavenly Father, we approach the book of Esther recognizing ourselves in the story. That we come with a sense of weakness. We try to blend in. We try to please people even when it means that we're not following you. And we know that you've hidden things here in this book that are deep and difficult for us to grasp. And we sense something, uh, though, of the expectation and hope that's in this story. Help us see that this is a story of our own lives, not just of Esther. Help us see that we uh, face the same kinds of issues, the same kind of pressures, the same fears, the same doubts. And there's times that we don't trust in you even when we have no other options. Lord, open our eyes to see you at work, even when things are quiet, when things aren't going well, when we've made bad choices and wrong decisions, and we found ourselves in sin yet again. Lord, thank you that your son, Jesus, died on the cross to pay the penalty for those sins, to remove the guilt and power from our life. Remind us, use Esther to remind us of the gospel of God's grace, that he can take sinful people like us and still use them in ways beyond our ability to figure out. Lord, teach us to be grateful for such good news. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.